when Willy Wonka sang the line, A little nonsense now and then is relished by the wisest of men. We doubt he had seen the same type of nonsense as, say, an eighth grade math teacher who might encounter this kind of behavior on the last day of school before winter break. And yet, educators everywhere are perpetually working to understand and interpret student behavior. While it might be challenging to acknowledge in the moment, research tells us the more often than not, a child does not possess the skills needed to handle a situation or meet the expectations set for them. Join us and you never know, you might just find a golden ticket for responding to behavior that you haven't yet tried. Listen in. Welcome back to the Grounded Learners Guild, the podcast that gets real about education, authentic leadership, and the transcendent power of being a part of a highly functioning team. Here are your very own guildmates and hosts, Casey Veach, Emily Coakland, and me, Jenny Labrie. Welcome back to our second segment of this two-parter on the science of behavior. In our last episode, we discussed some of the theory, including the functions of behavior. This week, we want to dive into the chocolate river of strategies to discuss some possibilities that are circulating around the educational community and consider what might work. Let's explore strategies now for how to build and support positive behavior in the Veruca Salts and the Mike TVs alike. So if you recall from our last episode, we dove into that chocolate river of information about the science behind behavior, specifically related to the ABCs of behavior, the antecedent, which is what occurs before a behavior shows up, the behavior itself, and then the consequence. And we also talked about the functions behind behavior, why students or kids or adults or anyone behaves a specific way. We talked about five of them, escape function, tangible function, attention function, intrinsic, and sensory. Our behavior episode strategies today are really going to focus on three because that's where we see some of the more, forgive the term, explosive or disruptive behaviors that can kind of impact our learning environment. We also want to lampshade that we here at GLG, this is new learning for us. I personally am very driven to learn more about behavior because we're seeing some behavior challenges in our own family, but this is a common issue across schools and classrooms. So this is a learning experience for us as well, but we're really excited to share with our listeners everything we have learned in the hopes that something will resonate and be helpful. Yeah. So if there's anybody who's feeling a spark of interest and an acknowledgement of your expertise in hearing this episode, know that we would love for that conversation to continue. All right. So with that said, I think we want to jump right in because like you said, this is a big learning experience for us and everybody's really hungry for more info about this topic, all three of us included. Yeah. And so really the first thing we need to talk about when we're talking about strategies to support positive behavior, this first one is the most difficult and I will speak to it from personal experience. So the first one we need to talk about is the most challenging, and it's the concept of mindset. When someone demonstrates negative or perceivably antisocial behavior, where they're being disruptive or they're trying to disengage or escape from something, it's very human 
to take that incredibly personal. And so what we want to do as teachers and as parents is look at the behavior and realize that it's a form of communication. That child or that person sitting across from us demonstrating that dysregulated behavior is trying to communicate some sort of need to us, whether that's a need of escape, a need for a sensory experience, a need to be heard. And when we think about it from that mindset place, the next step or an extension of that is thinking, am I, as the person who is seeing and witnessing this behavior, Am I adding fuel to that behavior bonfire? A dear friend of mine, Heidi LaFleur, is a national speaker, and she talks about, are we really adding fuel to a bonfire behavior? So engaging in a power struggle with a child or someone who is in that more escalated behavior, whether they're throwing something or just even something as insignificant as having a hood on by you adding like, oh, you have to do this. The tone of your voice adds fuel and increases the likelihood that that behavior is going to escalate and go even higher. So first thing we want to do when we think about how do I support and shift to more positive behaviors is that mindset. What's being communicated to me, I need to not take it personal and I need to not add fuel to this fire. Casey, that reminds me of the last, I can't even remember what episode it was, but you had been, you were talking about the bar, letting them borrow your calm. So that yeah. that is, again, related to this mindset idea, because you're thinking about if you get elevated or if you are dysregulated yourself, that's also adding to mm -hmm. that bonfire. Whereas if you bring your calm to that scenario, especially if it's an explosive behavior, for example, right. you're lending that to the other individual. Whether or not they're able to take it in that moment is another story that we'll talk through. But it's also a really good strategy to bring that calm because you're providing them with a space that they're unable to to do in, in their own or by themselves, but with you, perhaps you're going to provide that for them. I, w I had gotten some really good advice when I first started back in the co-teaching classroom with the seniors to consider through the lens of what will you do if the student says no. So if you say, mm -hmm. give me your cell phone, you've been on your cell phone this whole lesson, I've asked you twice, give me your cell phone. What will you do if the student says no? The goal right. is not to put yourself in that situation where you're going head to head with a student like that, where they would say no, and then what? Because then you automatically are elevating that behavior by mm -hmm. letting that situation play out. If you don't say something like that, don't give me your phone. If the student's got their phone up and it's just like, talk after this lesson or wait till work time, pull the kid aside, talk about how disrespectful it is. There's other options here, which I'm sure mm -hmm. we're going to go deeper into in just a few moments. But above all, that idea of not taking it personally, it's not that they think I'm boring, that they're on their phone or that they disrespect me because they're on mm -hmm. my phone, they're on the phone. It's really more they are just doing this thing. I can't bring it up or dial it up by making a behavior into a confrontation. Right. Well, I, I was in a classroom recently and I noticed one of the students, I'm currently serving in a middle school right now, and one of the students had an ear pod in his ear during the direct instruction of the lesson. And one of the blanket expectations that our principal and leadership has set out for this year is we can't have students with ear pods, we can't have students with cell phones visible. And so instead of confronting the child and saying, take out your ear pod, while <clears throat> there was a lull, I went up to the student and I said, hey, 
when we think about when a teacher is teaching, what is the expectation about earpods right now? And that actually gave the child a sense of autonomy to think about and reflect on what was the expectation and what is the choice that I am making here. If he would have said, well, my teacher said I have the earpod in my ear and that's okay, I, I would have been like, okay, that's fine. I'm not about to get in a power struggle here. It was just bringing up and giving the student the autonomy to make the right decision and reinforcing it later. Another big, or not necessarily an educational psychologist, but a psychologist named Dr. Ross Green, not Ross and Rachel married, but just to say, <laughs> wrong episode. Wrong <laughs> episode. Um, he wrote a book several years ago and is really an expert on very, very challenging antisocial behaviors. The book is called Lost at School. And he said that holding a kid accountable means that the kid is participating in a process in which he or she or they are identifying and articulating their own concerns or perspectives. So there could have been in that particular moment in the conversation I had with the young man, there could have been a reason he had his headphone in his ear. I was giving him space to express what that was. If he would have said, I really need this right now, I'm really struggling, totally fine. I would have backed off because that is the bigger priority. So autonomy too is another way you can support positive behaviors with students, giving them choice and power in the situation. Man, that's so important. We talk so much about wanting to give students more choice in their learning. It's just really a matter of expanding that out to their behavior as well, right? Well, and two, especially for a child where escape is the primary function, giving them choice about, okay, we're going to give you that free time for you to decompress or relax. What will it look like if we get some work done first? Like how many questions do you think is reasonable for me to expect? And you're going to see that as time goes on and you're retraining out that and replacing that old escape function with something else, you're going to see the time frame that a, a child can take between tasks. You're going to replace that escape function in the moment because the child is going to build up activity stamina. So it's kind of cool to think about how you can motivate students using those three different functions to help reinforce and relearn new behaviors. One of my, an oldie but a goodie, one of my favorite books that I had ever read, this was like going way back to some of my first years of teaching, was the the book Teaching with Love and Logic by Jim Fay and David Funk. Have you heard of that? Yeah, that was, yeah. You know, oldie but a goodie, but one of the, my biggest takeaways from that was along these lines of autonomy is they basically recommend having one rule. And it was for my classroom, I adopted it as you can do anything you need to in here as long as it is not impacting someone else's learning. So like it opened the door mm -hmm. wide for that autonomy, but that all encompassing rule or norm made it possible for it to still be a respectful and structured environment because it encompassed any of those explosive behaviors. Like if you're having this behavior, we would bring it back to that. You really have a lot of space here and autonomy here. How can you shift this so that it's not impacting someone else's learning in a negative light? Yeah. So let's talk about some more specific replacement reinforcers. So if a child is engaging in classroom work refusal that very much could be an escape function or attention function. It all depends on what that antecedent looks like. Are they trying to get out of something or are they trying to get you to pay attention to them or both? 
Yep. So this is where the functions and the ABC come together. Exactly. Exactly. So for a student who really is trying to, and I think my child is a mix of the two of them, whenever he personally doesn't want to do hard things, I'll say, okay, buddy, we're going to do these next two problems, and then you'll have a choice of an activity to do otherwise. So it focuses him and gives him two things that I need him to get done, and then he gets that escape to do two things that he wants to do, and then he comes back. And then I've noticed that over the last couple of school days, his desire for that escape has decreased in time because he knows the structure now and the routine of I'll get to do the things. I want to do as soon as I'm done with all these things I need to do. So retraining and giving more chunked space for an escape to happen increases that stamina. I love that, Casey, because it's also talking about building that trust within you as their facilitator, their guider, Mm -hmm. or their parent in this case, because if there's that trust there too, that they recognize that you're going to follow through with the structures that you're putting into place, that's also going to help them become more willing to comply Mm -hmm. with the structures that we need to in order to be productive. So um, a tangible function, for example, I heard a great uh, story about this child in station time who would absolutely love to play and engage with Legos. Very creative, very building focused. But whenever he was asked to move to the next station that didn't involve Legos, he would always explode like just had a complete meltdown in class. And so what ended up happening was as a means to retrain and reinforce a different behavior, the child was able to take a small number of Legos with him to the next station to help him provide or get that tangible feeling, even that sensory input as he was engaging in the next task. And the beautiful thing or the the real strength in these different reinforcements is they're scaffolds. They're meant to be taken away. So after a couple of days, instead of taking five Legos with him, he took four. A couple of days passed, then he took three. So we, we are retraining the way that he gets that sensory input. It was, it's really cool how if you look at behavior in this scientific way, it truly can help you reconnect with kids. The attention function, I think as you get into the middle grades, this is where you see a lot more of the antisocial behavior manifesting. Because kids in that particular age band, they really are seeking and craving belonging Mm -hmm. and act out in really sad ways because they feel like that is the only way they can be seen. It's their first time moving from class to class. Peer relationships are really important. And so... A couple of things you can do is, you know, provide them time to engage with their friends in a positive way at the end of class to rebuild that connection. Providing them roles and and positive ways to get attention can also be another way to retrain those middle grades and use some of this. Yeah, I think that's huge. The kids, especially when you talk middle school, high school, they're so socially motivated by what other people are doing and building that classroom sense of belonging for those kids is really going to at least possibly allow for them to rechannel that energy. Yeah. And Mm -hmm. I wonder when we think of the attention function in general and as it relates to the middle and high grades, 
sometimes as educators mm-hmm. or instructors and we're going through the content and the amount of standards we've got to get through, we lose sometimes building in or designing for opportunities for those types of social connections that would, if you already mm-hmm. do that, you're being proactive in addressing anyone that is motivated through this attention function. If you leave that out a lot, you might notice anyone in your classes that's not having that connection or connection or sense of belonging is going to struggle. So it's another plug for some of the, the strategies you can put in as a teacher to be doing a lot of the collaborative thinking and the cooperative learning strategies because of this behavioral issue if we leave it out. Right. And this is the an even bigger case for restorative circles, engaging oh, yeah. in proactive community building circles Bonus back points. from our season three. Yeah, exactly. Um, it provides students, because even in the middle grades, you've got that combination of peer attention, which is so important, and then the adult attention as well. A lot of our kids are coming to classrooms. We've talked about it before with trauma, without Mm -hmm. that positive adult connection that is so indicative of kids actually showing up to school. And so providing that proactive community building circle can be really another way of providing that space. And I would just even say from the adult learning lens, Casey, when we've done some of the restorative circles with our adult learners, at first I was, I mean, you had to convince me, Casey, I was kind of like, you know, is this going to be something like we're modeling what we would do with kids and this is why we're doing it. It was so powerful with our adult learners too, that need for connection. So when we think Mm -hmm. of mindset and behavior of our adult learners. It fits there too. Absolutely. And really, I just love that you are bringing in this idea of giving the kids attention from multiple people in the room. Because when you think about increasing that sense of belonging, if for a kid to really feel like they belong, it's not just going to come from a handful of peers. It's not just going to come from the teacher. It really is a full classroom community effort there. Right. Another strategy that, again, this comes from my friend Heidi LaFleur. Definitely look her up. She's got some great resources for behavior. She talks about creating an empathy map. So these are used often in the business world when they want to kind of understand their key consumer. Design thinking. But Mm -hmm. exactly. But doing it one or encouraging kids to help you as their teacher by creating their own empathy map can really help you understand ways that you can motivate and retrain pro-social behaviors. So an empathy map will typically include a picture of the student, a little bit about them, their interests, but also their struggles. When is school and learning hard for them? And then when you as my teacher need to talk to me, please do this, this, and this. And it, again, brings back that autonomy and that connection that I think so often we assume that behavior and classroom management is one size fits all. And that's why we're seeing all of these problems with behavior. Kids got used to in the COVID days of independent learning and so we need to bring some of that and back into our classrooms and in doing this empathy map activity can be really helpful and yeah. pay dividends in the long run. 100%. And for the adult learners too, I've had to make an empathy map before. I think I mentioned it in the Brave Conversations episode when I was talking about the way kind of preemptively considering the way somebody might want to have a brave conversation or be mm-hmm. confronted or talked to about something. If you can get that get that out there more in the hypothetical than in a real more fraught situation from a kid or from an adult, that's that information is gold. It helps you really speak to the person on the level that they want to be spoken to and communicate in a way that considers their needs and allows you to consider your own while you consider theirs. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes when we think about behavior, 
we have in our minds as teachers clear expectations of what the class should look like, sound like, and feel like. And I will say I made assumptions about what my expectations were to students. Like when I said work independently, I have to be clear as their teacher, what does that actually look like and sound like? Otherwise, we are putting forth these expectations on kids without actually teaching them what they mean. There are a number of different frameworks out there to help you really clarify and provide kids with space for practicing how to achieve these expectations with behavior. One of them comes from Safe and Civil Schools. Dr. Randy Spricks' organization, he puts forth the camp framework. This is something that we're currently doing in my school right now. Um, And it's an acronym that really outlines what conversation should sound like. So like voice level, Um, what do students need to do when they ask for help? Is it ask three before me or is it directly ask the teacher? The activity, it provides some specific clarity on what they should be doing, what the level of movement should look like if they are in their seats or if they have free movement around the classroom. Um, participation expectations. How can my teachers see that I'm engaging with the activity and what success should look like? What should students learn or the learning target as a result of the the activity and the things that they're doing? There are some great anchor charts out there. One of my favorites is it's like conversation and has three choices and the teacher kind of moves the level for where the students should be. It's I think while it seems juvenile, I think even our middle and upper grades can benefit from those clearly defined expectations for what we should be doing in class. Well, Casey, I wouldn't even discredit it so much as being juvenile. I mean, maybe the anchor chart, but like you can even use this acronym as a criteria for success yourself as an educator to plan for how am I going to have clear expectations and articulate them in such a way, hey, have I considered all of these letters from champs? And then finally, I think with all of these strategies and even your current practices, it's important for you to review and reflect what behaviors are you as the teacher rewarding with your attention. Oftentimes, kids demonstrate, like I said earlier, those elevated behaviors because they're seeking that attention. So are you noticing the best behavior in students first before you redirect any antisocial or anti-positive or non-positive behaviors from kids? And what are you choosing to reinforce with your attention? Because you're going to get more of what you notice first. Yes. I know Jim Knight had offered a really good tool for positive interaction counting. So to really Mm -hmm. zero in either with a coach or an observer on your number of positive interactions you have with students in your room, that might be a good way just to kind of build your own self-awareness about making sure that you're noticing positive things, making positively slanted comments to your students first to kind of start building awareness in that area. I love that, you guys, because really, if we think about it as we're rounding this whole thing out of strategies, it goes right back to the mindset where we started, right? Mm -hmm. So this is a way to reflect and review on how it's going. But just going back to like, where's my mindset at and helping yourself get on that even keel so that you can be that calm space for those kiddos in your classroom. So now that we've set a really nice mindset, we need to talk about some awful Wonka children. (laughs) (laughs) They're not all bad, are they? Uh, Not Charlie, (laughs) really. (laughs) 
Okay, so we're just going to zero in on one of them. Tune in on one of them, pardon the pun, because the kid we're going to talk about here is Mike TV. So for anyone who hasn't read or watched any of those in a while, this is the kiddo who's really obsessed with watching television. He's kind of into like violent shows and, you know, likes a lot of that. I think they rewrote him in one in the Depp movie to be more of a video game kid. But either way, he is a media consumption maniac and he is very hyped up and kind of aggressive. So if we were going to try to help Mike TV learn some different behavior using some of the strategies in question, what could this look like? Well, I think first we have to identify correctly through observation his function. For the most part, any child who does gravitate towards more of that technology is really in that escape function. Yeah, I agree. He really is folding himself into that television world, so to speak. Not really a part of what he's supposed to be doing, even when it's an awesome chocolate factory tour. Right. So I would say for Mike, being that he does want to watch TV and get that escape, that is something you can leverage as you're trying to reteach more positive behaviors with him. So first, we're going to do this task for five minutes, and then you'll be able to pop open your phone or pop open your video to watch something. We'll set that timer and come back to do another five minutes of task. Because it's true that, and I don't know about you all, but I felt this myself, it's hard to wean myself off of media consumption. Oh boy. To go completely full turkey with someone who is engaging in that escape function using technology or video games, you're going to see more explosive behaviors. And it's very true that your behaviors may, as you're being very targeted and providing these interventions, the behaviors may get worse before they get better, but you have to stick with the intervention over time. So in Mike's case, you're going to be weaning him off of that dependence on TV if his function is escape. Okay. So Emily, I'm going to steal your typical role of being the cynic of the group or the <laughs> the one that's going to bring a little bit of the, we don't call you the cynic. What do we call you? Skeptic. Skeptic. That's, a little, that's a little softer. Sorry there, Emily. But in I'm any sorry. case, working with especially our high school teachers that have, let's say, a 40 or 44 minute class period and they have a, they have a mic TV in their classroom, I could often hear and have often heard teachers say like, I don't have the time to wean this kid in my 40 minutes. So what do you guys suggest there? Well, I can even say that these kids are very attached to their screens. And one of the things that I would do with my co-teacher in our talk class was often say, just put your screens aside for a couple of minutes. We're going to go over some important content and work on a skill. There's going to be some work time at the end. And when that happens, you are okay to check your phone. So almost like build in phone time. Because I've seen a study that basically says if you if you take the phones away or like put the phones down, they're still kind of thinking about their phones. So even by paying mind to the fact that you know they're thinking about the phones and that phone time is coming, that can help a little bit. And I have seen many of the students in the class, well, at least flip the phone face down and give you back that eye contact. If you mention phone time's coming, need you for a couple more minutes. And you can make that work time or that end time vary, you know? So sometimes it's 10 minutes before the end of class. Sometimes it's five minutes before the end of class. It's not guaranteed to be that same amount every time to kind of change their level of a dependence on it. And you put in that friendly reminder, which isn't, okay, put your phones down, but just like, okay, we still need you for just a couple more minutes. There's going to be some time to check your phone shortly. Stay with us. And mm-hmm. it helped. 
what I was thinking was whether it is because of screen time addiction or it has to do with just your introversion. Mm -hmm. If you're in that escape function and you need that, if we are thinking about our instructional practices and moving them in a direction of perhaps blended learning practices, for example, that's going to build your capacity to allow for that kind of engagement in your classroom that's going to be more personalized for those kids that require a need for escape in some way in a in a kind way but not just like oh we're just giving them whatever they want and they could just look at their phones and not learn no if you build in the mm-hmm. ways for them to choose if we're not thinking chronologically if i'm not the sage on stage providing all the content but i've designed my lessons in such a way that i have students that are able to engage in the ways they need to you actually build in that time without it really sacrificing the amount of learning that has to happen in the 40 minutes or in the the block schedule that you have provided. You can make that work. So mm-hmm. you're basically saying that if you had a Mike TV, using some blended strategies, giving him some instructional videos in addition might yep. scratch that itch a little yep. bit. I like it. Nice. Yep. I like it. All right. So summing it up, we've got Mike TV. We've got a long factory tour ahead of us and we know that his attention is going to be waning and his aggression is going to be rising because he is craving that screen time what we're doing is first of all making him aware that we know he needs some screen time throughout the day boat ride is a perfect chance for him to get a little bit of that escape uh, <laughs> terrifying yeah anybody would want to escape that my goodness <laughs> Yes. Maybe uh, while they're zooming around the elevator between different rooms too, he could take a minute to look at a device. So much easier now when than when that book is written, by the way, to have a portable yeah. screen right there in your pocket, right? And maybe a little instructional video here and there. So maybe instead of a little Oompa Loompa singing, they could do a little bit of video for him. <laughs> tell him about some of the different rooms and then re-engage him in the more face-to-face activities later. Well, and I think including him in the process by giving him the language he needs, like, I need a break. I need to use one of my devices for three minutes here so that I can escape this for a little bit and then come back. Providing even the student the language to articulate their needs is, I think, a step in providing them that skill to regulate their own behavior. Yeah, good call. Because his communication throughout that book about what he needs is very pointed and sharp. I think that that could really have helped him a lot if that had been discussed beforehand and reminded throughout, right? Exactly. He wouldn't have been done in. in the Which room was he done in for? Oh, the television mm-hmm. room, of course. His vice does him in. That's right. Yep. He wanted that screen time so badly, he jumped right into that screen. Uh, yikes. Well, and that's often what happens in schools, right? The student's behavior is the thing that really inhibits the learning experience. And so we want to avoid that issue, that pitfall that all the Wonka children go through is their functions and behaviors are really what keeps them from that ultimate prize at the end. Well, and Casey, I just love that you're even talking about that now. It just popped into my head. The fact that this is, again, I don't know, Emily, librarian, help me out here, when the book was written. But like, this isn't new to this yeah. era. Yes, perhaps we've we've touched a lot on some of the behaviors that are related to having modern devices in our pockets. However, the behaviors themselves and the concepts of that doing them in mm-hmm. was something that was has been around as long as time has as long as there's been kids right, right? but 
we're seeing them exacerbated now because of a lot of the challenges we've had over the last couple of years. So it's a nice reminder to come back to the basics and think about the strategies that we can be more thoughtful and intentional in the way we interact. Yeah. And know that you could always reach out to your school if you're blessed enough to have a school psychologist, a school social worker. Many of schools right now are looking for and seeking behavior specialists. An instructional coach can help. So know that you don't have to, as a classroom teacher, engage in this behavior work retraining by yourself. I love that. Yeah. I think a lot of people, you know, the more traditional mindset is it's kind of me and whoever would address behavior, the deans, et cetera. And a lot of schools don't even have those anymore. There are specialists out there who are trained in these type of practices that can definitely help you. I know I had even made that one of my connections in the Star Trek episode. These are these are the people who help us hear our students and figure out what they need. And two, if you're looking for other intervention behavior modification strategies, check out Heidi LaFleur's website. She's got some good things there, but also interventioncentral.org provides some very targeted behavior-focused interventions too. And because I cannot let my inner librarian not know the answer to something, I Googled it and the book was published in 1964. Tale is over time. Yep. I knew you'd come through, Em. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. Assist to Dr. Google. Okay. So now that we've gone through some of the ins and outs of this, let's start talking candy and games. This will be fun. Yes. So I think the game we're going to play today is just a little, little on the dark side, but we've gone through before. <laughs> I think the discussion today was to try to figure out which of the candy rooms would have got us proverbially voted off the island when it comes to inheriting Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. <laughs> I know there's so many rooms enough to fill an entire glass elevator, but I think the ones that we're considering is the aforementioned Wonka Vision Room, where Mike mm-hmm. TV met his end of his tour, the Candy Forest and Candy River, where they uh, lost Augustus Gloop. Up the, the pipe, right? Up the <laughs> the inventing room where Violet had her gum and blueberry incident. The mm-hmm. room with the golden eggs. Now, this was different from the book. I think the book, it was squirrels. But let's stick with the golden eggs from the yes. 70s movie, the Gene Wilder but movie. I want one Our- now, Daddy. Now, Daddy. I want a golden goose. <laughs> yes. And then finally, those fizzy drinks that make you float where we actually saw our our good golden child, Charlie, even uh, meet some temptations. Okay, so I am game czar here, and I will be as evil as I want to be as per usual. And I think what we're going to do instead of just deciding where we would meet our end, just think about it in your head, which of those rooms would be the part where your tour stops because of reasons and think of your reasons too. And then we are going to try to guess where we think the tour would end for someone else in the guild. So Jenny, I'm going to have you guess Casey. Casey, you're guessing me. I will guess Jenny. Oh, that's hard for me. Games are. I want to guess both of you, but I guess I'll follow by your yeah. rules because I've got some good ones <laughs> for know. both of you. Yep. Jenny's going first. I, I am secretly playing inside I know, my head right? Too. It's so hard. So. <laughs> All right. I'm guessing for Casey, right? Yeah, you're guessing Wh- for Casey. Why are you doing this to me? Anytime I guess anything for Casey, I throw her under the bus, <laughs> man. Evil games oh. are. I am who I I'm am. Sorry, Casey, for anything I say. Okay. Please forgive me. That's all right. <laughs> so the one I was thinking that would do you in would be the Wonka Vision. You oh. 
you are a screen girl. You like your shows. You watch lots of videos. This one would be hard for you to resist. It, it, it would be difficult, but I think the difference is I don't necessarily want to be on TV. I just like to consume yeah. <laughs> it. And in the vein of the consumption, I actually think the fizzy drinks Ooh. would do me in. Because I am a Diet Coke girl. I love bubbles in the morning. I love bubbles in the day. Beverage Goblin. Goblin. That's it. Yes. Casey. How did I miss that? No. Beverage Goblin. Sneaks in with the Beverage Goblin. You're right. Like like my new colleagues are like, you're coming in with three drinks. I'm like, yes, each has a function. So (laughs) the fuzzy, the fizzy drinks would do me in. Fair. But now you got to guess mine. Oh, gosh. Okay. So I am going to guess, Emily, that the inventing room would do you in just (laughs) because I think you like to experience new things and having a a gum that would taste like coffee so you could have it all the time would be amazing. Girl, you got me. You're good. Look at Veach winning a game again. Oh, that doesn't mean I'm going to guess you. We'll see. (laughs) All right. What's your explanation? My explanation here is she was pretty close. And it's not just the coffee thing either. I also love to cook. You know that. So the idea of the full meal in the gum, like that would be impossible for me to keep my grubby little fingers off of that and (laughs) see what that's like, you know, just chew the gum while you're still getting the satiation and feeling of actually eating a meal that's nobody has ever done that before. I would lose my mind. Of course I would do that. Yep. Sorry. I'm a blueberry. All right. All what right. do you think I am? Jenny. Jenny, I'm going a little weird with this. I think you might be a fizzy drink person too. I think once you knew they would give you the sensation of flying, you would be unable to resist it. Wifey, you know me so well. That was the one. Ah, fizzy drinks. Was that the reason? It, and it is the reason. That's what it, I had no, it had nothing to do with the drinks like the beverage goblin over here would say. But it had everything to do with even <laughs> watching the movie. I remember just wanting so badly to be in that room flying up. Like now the fan at the top terrified oh, yeah. me. And the poor grandpa that was right. with. Was that his grandpa? With them that yeah, we were, were all worried about Grandpa Joe. So, so yeah. But And then that also means that for Casey and I, we are. Are we the Charlie? who's gonna inherit the factory now yeah well my question my connection to you jenny was the fizzy drinks as well but i was like what if it was root what if they were root beer drinks Mm -hmm. (laughs) casey knows yeah what i find hilarious about this you remember how they got down from that right how they survived that yeah so there's a nice mental picture for our listeners just both y'all burping all the way down all right i'm gonna award some prizes so casey gets an unlimited supply of diet coke only one of the diet cokes in the whole supply will make her fly though (laughs) okay you've got a you've got a lot of diet coke drinking to do a beverage goblin don't worry they'll be done in four days it's fine And I think I'm just going to reward myself a blueberry pie slice at some point just to keep myself out of danger and temptation's way. <laughs> That's probably nice. for the best. I'm a gum person. Excellent. Okay. Yep. Not bad. And Jenny, your time is coming. Yeah, eventually. I don't know. Maybe season five, not this season. I'm, I'm, we'll see. Yeah. We'll just keep switching things off and I won't always be the game star. So you might. 
All right. Thanks for playing, ladies. Now, just to kind of wind things up, we want to always remind you what's coming up in episodes to follow. And since this is the end of a two-parter, we're going to be switching topics very soon. The next topic that we're going to be discussing on an upcoming episode is going to be about coaches and middle learners and how they adapt to that role. And we're going to be using an interesting lens through a travel channel show called Expedition Unknown. So don't miss that one. And that's a wrap on today's episode. It's always so fun to be behind the mics talking to you, our GLG fam. Thanks for choosing to come around to engage with our guild's content as we passionately continue to advocate for adult learners with transparent conversations about the world of education, impactful leadership, and the power of high-functioning teams. The Grounded Learners Guild is a production of Grounded Learning, LLC. If you'd like to connect, the power of the PLN continues. As always, you can find us on our website, thegroundedlearnersguild.com. While you are there, check out our past episodes, our socials, and learn how you can bring the GLG flavor to your next professional learning event. And yep, you know, your feedback is everything. Feedback is that powerful tool that allows us to be responsive to the topics that matter to you most. If you haven't yet already or are finding us for the first time, leave us a review and hit that subscribe button. You can find us wherever you stream. Thanks as always for tuning in to be a part of the Grounded Learners Guild. That's it for us, Casey, Emily, and me, Jenny, in today's episode. See you all at the next Guild meeting. And don't forget, in the meantime, do your best to stay grounded.